Chapter 4. Harvest. 1938 was an exceptional year, and Litvinovka hosted more guests and parties than ever before. If the weather was fine, the guests were received on the terrace with the view of the enchanting garden full of colourful flowers. In the spring and summer, flowers grew in abundance. Daisies, flowering sage, velvet pansies, marigolds, nasturtium, white lilies, blood-red peonies, hollyhocks, dahlias, and tall multicoloured tulips. In the autumn, asters ruled in the sombre shades of deep violet, as if symbolising the passing of summer. On the slender, frayed petals, the remaining hungry wasps would settle momentarily before heading to the orchard, where they needled the yellow flesh of ripe, juicy pears, as if it was honey. In the evening, the heady aroma of night-scented stalk would encourage the gatherings to continue long after the sun had set. On such occasions, Olga placed the golden samovar with its small pot of tea essence on top of a crisp white linen cloth. Glasses clanked and hot water hissed as the tea was served with the customary Morello cherry confiture. Everything followed a specific ritual. The confiture was prepared in flat copper pots over a period of several days. Children were often involved in this process, which was perhaps a touch boring for them. The Morello cherries had to be pitted very delicately so as not to harm the flesh of the fruit. Once ready, the confiture had a clear consistency with a deep carmine colour and full-sized fruit. It was served in a large crystal bowl and always looked beautiful and delicious. Those attending this gathering fell under the spell of the beautiful surroundings of Litvinovka and the charm of the hosts themselves. For the last few years, politics was the most popular subject matter under discussion, and very often strong words were exchanged. Zahar had worked on the estate for quite a while now, together with Vassil, Victor and Vavodia. Zahar arrived when he was 40 years old as a single man and with no living relatives, but soon felt like a part of the family. Here he found warmth and goodwill. For the twins, he always remained a second grandfather, and they were very fond of him, especially Nunya, whom he never scolded. Moreover, he often defended her when Anna told of the mischievous child. He was a master of storytelling, and his fables were the most beautiful to the twins' ears. Zahar often helped Olenka with the apiary, especially when her husband, Mikoai, was imprisoned for several months at Bereza Kartuska for his communist activities. That particular summer was scorching hot and Zaha was taking the girls to Zavin in carriage to see Auntie Olenka and her three daughters, Anuta, Zoya and four-year-old Irenka. Zavin was a small settlement which consisted of only 18 houses. It was surrounded by forests on all sides like an oasis hidden from the human eyes. Only two roads led to Savin, one from Vileika and the other one from Kurenis, which led through Maria's and Antoni's estate. Just like all the houses in the eastern borderlands, they were built from timber and were fronted with large glazed verandas. Olenka lived right in the heart of the forest. From the forest's dense darkness, one would arrive into a courtyard where a large pear tree overhung a table and benches that invited everybody to relax straight away. To the west there was a cherry orchard and a group of old large linden trees. The remaining land was covered with many colourful beehives arranged in long rows. Mikoai, Olenka's husband, was a teacher by profession, but in his spare time took care of the apiary. 
He was a passionate scholar of Polish history and belonged to an underground political organization. The honey that was produced by Mikołaj had a great reputation in the neighborhood, both for its excellent quality and amazing aroma. The bees thrived on wild flowers, which grew in great abundance there. Both of the beehives stood in the meadow, which in autumn was covered in heather. In the summer, wild raspberry, strawberry and blueberry bushes grew there. The twins considered a stained savin to be a real treat. They loved the sunshine, the crystal clear air, the bird song and running wild in the meadows. There were times when the apiary was somewhat somber place. Then the bees moved lazily, as if the flowers had lost their colour and aroma, and the honey was not that sweet, transparent or aromatic. This usually happened whenever their master, Mikoi, was absent. Even big-hearted Zahar, who looked after the apiary, was at loss to understand. It was simply that nature and the bees missed Mikoi, his soft touch and the sweet murmurings that he showered his little winged friends with. How often he would loll to sleep, this flying kingdom, with just one word. Fortunately, Mikowai's absences did not last too long. In the spring and summer, the apiary buzzed and life seemed to be in full swing. All God's creatures were on the prowl to get something for themselves. In the sunshine, around the wide trunks of the trees, fat, slippery, poisonous snakes tangled together, creating strange shapes like monsters from one of Martha's, August and Anna's fables. The twins wore rubber wellingtons to avoid being bitten by these creatures. At midday, when the sun rays fell perpendicularly, the family of reptiles would crawl out from the rotting green trunk, parents and siblings tightly entwined in larger and smaller balls, shining like polished copper. For Nunya, spring was the most magical time at Litvinovka, but the harvest was equally lyrical and picturesque. The female harvester, covered in their multicoloured scarves, looked like poppies scattered on the ripe wheat fields. All the seasonal help would arrive very early, and the happy chatter and singing would wake up those who lived in Litvinovka. Nunya and Danusia would rise earlier than ever, run to Salon and observe the colourful procession through the window. They sat on the window sill, awaiting the harvesters, who were mainly Belarusians. The men carried sizes and the women's sickles. The girls' kerchiefs were tied at the back of their hats, and they wore white, heavily embroidered blouses without any underwear, which showed off their young, firm breasts. Their skirts, which were usually pleated or gathered, reached down to their meat cuffs. The men had flushed red faces, thick blonde hair, and seemed powerful and healthy. They wore wide grey linen pants and the traditional rubashka shirts with narrow embroidered collars. These were usually open at the neck, revealing broad muscular chests. They had red woven belts with a fringe, which fit snugly around the hips. The blades of the sizes and sickles shimmered like cold silver as they reflected the rays of the rising disk of the sun. The twins were enchanted by this scene and loved the songs even though not all of them were very happy ones. Some of them were a lament about the fate of the seasonal worker, who had no land of their own and lived in basic one-room abodes with just a few potatoes and vegetable plants. Nevertheless, the twins remembered many of these songs as they somehow touched their young hearts. On arrival at Litvinovka, the harvesters would stop singing and prepare for the day ahead. The women unloaded their bundles and tied up their skirts. The silence was broken by the sound of tools being sharpened 
and the click of metal. The Tfinovka was slowly waking, and as work commenced, the sounds of cattle snorting, horses whining, hands clucking and geese hissing all amalgamated into one loud melody. Shepherd Vovodya set off to open the stables, Anna fed the poultry, Zaha tended to the horses, and Vasil swore at the pigs. Olga prepared breakfast for the children, which normally consisted of a crusty roll and a hot cup of cocoa. Every morning freshly baked bread was left in the basket at the threshold by the baker's son. The golden fields of wheat welcomed the arrival of the harvesters, heavy hats and delicate slender stems, bent towards their benefactors, thanking them for the timely arrival so that none of the ripe kernels would be lost. The cut stems rustled as they were tied into sheaves and arranged like a house of cards, which from the distance appeared like huge puppets in large gathered skirts. At noon, the harvesters stopped working and sat down on the stubble forming colourful rings as they awaited a well-deserved meal. Olga and Anna brought out large baskets of food and Zahar followed close behind with a cart carrying hot soup. Sometimes the twins joined the maize and helped serve the pots of saladuja, a vinegar-based broth made from bread and herbs. They sat with the harvesters listening to their songs and their interesting stories. After the meal, the workers took up their tools again. The women straightened their backs from time to time and wiped their flushed faces, which were covered with thick perspiration. As evening closed in, the tired sun hid behind the thick forest. Darkness embraced the fields and the harvesters left for the village. They were not singing any longer, just quietly humming melodies, full of longing for a better tomorrow. Somberness descended. The fields of grain that had been so alive with movement and flashes of gold and silver had lost their luminosity, having been brutally brought down to earth. The sheaves of wheat resembled scarecrows as blackbirds arrived for the evening feast. Dusk would often feed Nunia's imagination as strange and unreal visions appeared in front of her eyes. She saw Joseph with Abrahamic playing hide-and-seek with the black robes flying in the wind, happy, giggling, childlike, allowing himself to have a brief moment of joy and thanking God for mercy and the gift of a son. None of the farmhands or helpers on the estate were of Jewish origin. In Kurienitz there were many poor Jewish families where poverty seeped from every door and window. Ackerman belonged to this group and Abrahamic tried to explain it to the twins why this was the case. Ackerman's father was a wealthy merchant and had many big stores in Russia that would make Gurvid's shop in Korenitz look like nothing. Listen and don't interrupt. When the Bolsheviks came, he lost everything and escaped to Poland, where he settled in that miserable hovel in Korenitz. When old Ackerman died, his son knew nothing except how to trade. But what was he supposed to trade with? His pockets were empty, he had nothing, so now instead he gathers old rugs and pots and sometimes sharpens knives, but his merchant pride would never allow him to work for somebody else. The twins felt sorry for Ackerman, and when they asked Maria the same question, she answered without hesitation. Jewish people are not used to farming the land, and if they had a talent to do so before, they lost it when forced to flee their persecutors. They excel in commerce as they do not have to carry land on their shoulders. It is enough to bring money over and open a shop, be it large or small, and they can trade and do very well 
at just that like Grandad Jakob used to. Anna, as usual, was of different opinion and loved it, Maria's explanation. She claimed the Jews were lazy and afraid of hard physical labor. The twins gathered their knowledge from a variety of sources. Their parents, Captain Zavoy, and their elder siblings. Lila and Edmund often read to them, taught them to read and write, as well as simple arithmetics. Zhuczek, of course, was only interested in army training. He advised them on the art of war, and with a stick in his hand, conducted exercises in attack and defense. The education of Edmund and Lila was very expensive, but Antony and Maria were happy in the knowledge that their children were both talented and studious. They paid for two different grammar schools in different towns, boarding in landlords' houses and additional lessons in violin, guitar, ballroom dancing and skating. Every student at high school was very well prepared for practical as well as academic tasks. The boys knew how to handle a plane and the girls a sewing machine. The skills they acquired were used to build bird houses and benches for the school garden. The school gardens were always very well maintained and the abandoned flower beds carefully tended by the students. Lila was particularly gifted, both in mathematics and art. Her dream was to become an architect, while Edmund, much to the delight of Grandpa Jakob, was interested in commerce and economics and attended a grammar school that focused on these subjects. Auntie, on the other hand, was not terribly pleased with the subject choice as he wanted Edmund to attend cadet college and train to be an army officer. Jakob, glass of homemade vodka in hand, patted Edmund on the shoulder and praised his plans for the future. My dear boy, I like your choice of college very much. It will teach you to think on feet and make quick calculations, both essential for running a profitable business. After a few glasses of his favorite drink, Jakob's eyes shone with delight. He wanted, through his grandson, to realize his own unfulfilled dreams of being a great merchant. The more he drank, and he had become very fond of this happy liquid of late, the more far-reaching his plans for Edmund became, even seeing him as the owner of many streets in Vilnius. Nobody took Jakob's words too seriously now. Times had changed, and the old idea of unlimited control by the father and total obedience towards one person had gone. Nunya had not shown an interest in anything in particular until now, except playing tricks on others. But her real passion was books, and by the age of six she read fluently. She didn't have to rely on the grown-ups for the stories and fables which she loved so much. Nunya loved to be praised, and even as a four-year-old was not averse to telling tales to achieve this. She would sit in the garden with a book in her hand and pretend to read, as she knew all the fables by heart. On one such occasion, when Ruva the baker was delivering some bread to Litvinovka, he observed the rascal and was astonished. My dear child, what am I seeing? It has to be a miracle. This tiny child, how old is she, Pani Maria? Three or four? She's a genius. I have never, never. I'm running to Kurienis to tell everybody. This is incredible. Whenever autumn approached, the nature grave. Metal ploughs turned over fat black clods of earth with difficulty. Flocks of birds, tame as poultry, dug out remnants of grain. Crows and ravens cowed loudly. The wet fields were waiting to be ploughed to make room for the spring sowing. The leaves from potato plants yellowed. 
dried and became sharp and prickly. The forest sparkled with gold, brown and crimson, and reddish moss smelt of dampness. The faces of seasonal workers were less content than during the harvest, and the outfits took on hue of autumn greyness. The sky was full of heavy dark blue clouds, which the wind constantly tried to chase away. One or two clouds might escape, but most remained hanging over Litvinovka. When a single ray of sunshine shyly broke through, everybody was reminded the sun had not gone forever and would return with the warmer weather in the springtime. Bonfires were lit on the potato fields. The aroma of burnt stalks filled the air and smoke sipped into clothing. The children baked potatoes on the bonfires, and for them each season seemed to bring incomparable joy. They used pokers to dig out the baked potatoes, which they called bulbi, and consumed them with great delight. Autumn was the last time that the cattle had the freedom to roam outside. The cows walked around sadly and grazed on what remained of the yellow grass. Shepherd Vowodia would perch himself on a rock, looking pensive and deflated. He wore an oversized jacket, two long trousers and a hat, which was full of holes. To Nunya he looked like a small child, dressed up in a grown-up clothing. He was ageing and sometimes forgot his duties, but Maria and Antony tolerated these mischaps, as alike Olga and Zahar he had worked on the land for many years. When golden September arrived, the last of the sun rays continued to warm hearts. In Savin, the honey harvest was underway. Friends and local shop owners would descend on Savin to enjoy this seasonal treat. The twins awaited the arrival of Zhutrek before setting off together to Savin. As they emerged from the thick, dark forest just past the Belarusian cemetery, they could already hear the happy voices coming from Mikolai and Olenka's house. The courtyard was filling with guests, some of them standing by the pear tree and others returning from inspecting the beehives. Mikolai walked around smiling, which suggested that the business had been good, and he offered everybody his special honey vodka. Among the assembled guests, the twins spotted quite a few familiar faces. But there was one young woman there who was known to everybody. She was always alone, considered somewhat strange, and known to be so poor that she made her living by reading cards and at times even begging. She would approach everybody and offer to predict their future. To avoid embarrassment, some people would offer her food or clothing before she even had a chance to ask for anything. Her name was Christina. She never awaited anybody's invitation to turn up wherever there was a party and seemed to arrive as quickly as an arrow. Often she sat silently either in the kitchen or in the corner of the garden so as not to draw attention to herself. However, people could sense her presence and always looked around to see what she might be hiding. Those who had experience of her predicting misfortune avoided her at all costs. She was around 25 years old and considered to be something of a beauty with a thick curly blonde hair framing a delicate oval face. She had a perfectly straight nose, full lips and elongated olive green eyes carrying a constant look of surprise. She spoke very quickly in both Polish and Belarusian, but in moments of trance often used strange, unknown words. Christina lived at the end of Litvinki village on the edge of the forest in an old falling down cottage. Nobody remember when and where she came from. Nobody remember her mother either, who apparently died shortly after moving to the area. Behind her cottage lay a large cemetery, which belonged to several of the neighboring villages. 
The fortune teller was often seen walking around the towns and villages and through the surrounding fields, meadows and forests. Whenever she grew tired, she escaped and hid in the silence of the cemetery, where she sat for hours on a bench which was as old as her cottage. Here she stared at the rows of graves, some of which had been well looked after and covered with flowers, and others long forgotten. For Christina, this place of silence was the bottomless source of material for her future telling, both good and bad. Christina visited Litvinovka often, where the kind and caring Olga took pity on her fellow orphan and invited her to bathe and eat in her quarters. She was slender, short and cut-like in movement, and with her hair clean and brushed, falling in long copper-blonde waves on her shoulders, she did indeed look very beautiful. Whatever the weather, the fortune-teller always wore on her back a large, heavy black woolen shawl with a very long fringe. Underneath she wore a simple fitted cotton dress, one directly over her naked body. In the summer her heavy fringe shawl swept the courtiers of the houses she visited. When Christina heard from Olga about the honey harvest celebration, she made her way directly to Savin, crossing meadows and forests to do so. A smile lit her face, as there were still many guests whose fortunes she could foretell, and in that way unburdened herself of the heaviness she had gathered at the gloomy cemetery. She sat down on the steps of the veranda, as she had no intention of hiding in a corner on that particular day. In her usual fashion, she drew her knees to herself, and her far too short skirt rose to reveal her scuffed shoes, shapely legs and a bare thighs. She did it with no intention of flirting, but for comfort alone. Olenka put a basket of food in front of her. The children really liked this local fortune teller. They sat down by her side as Olenka asked to hear what the future might bring. Listen, pretty girl, the honey harvest has been really successful. But what is going to happen after this time of sweet honey? Olenka inquired, smiling. She extended her hand. The twins held their breath and waited for Christina's words. The outstretched hand hung in the air, but Christina ignored it. Olenka started to wave it in front of her, but at this very moment the fortune teller sprinted away like a frightened goat towards the nearby bushes. Her abrupt escape could have been explained by the sudden appearance in the garden of Pan Preminger. He was a wealthy merchant, whom she had met previously in Vileika. On that occasion he had reached into his pocket, taken out his lottery and offered it to Christina. Instead of showing her gratitude, Christina told him that he would be widowed very soon. Indeed, less than a month later, Preminger buried his wife, and this strange event was often retold, and not only in Vileika. Now on seeing her again in Savin, Preminger did not have time to react, as she flashed past him like a panther and disappeared into the forest. The merchant promptly bid farewell to Mikoi, and within ten minutes the fortune-teller had resumed her seat on the stairs, combing her golden hair. She seemed particularly animated by her encounters with the ghost in the cemetery, and needed an outlet for her prophecies. When she noticed Mikoi standing by himself, she grabbed his hand. The handsome Mikoi, with his light blue eyes, smiled at her kindly, but within minutes his face turned to stone, and he stood motionless staring in the direction of his wife. He did not believe in fortune-tellers, rather only in the material world, having long ago abandoned his faith. But what he had heard shook the atheist's soul. He reached for a glass of clear spirit, rolled it around in the glass, and then downed it in one gulp. He felt the taste of poison. 
This was not from his own delicious vodka production, but a bitter drink, and this bitterness numbed his lips. He banned Olenka from any contact with Christina. He was afraid that these irresponsible words would sow the seeds of despair and fear in Olenka's heart at the vision of hell on earth that awaited them.